You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Hi, and thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. I'm with Professor Stephen Blair, who's from the Arnold School in South Carolina. And as many of you will know, he provided the substantial data that showed the association between physical activity and improved mortality. And he's published in JAMA many times going back to 1989. It's a pleasure to be with you, Steve, in here in London. And uh, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. So we'll jump straight into the question of obesity. There's a lot of media about obesity and uh, people say that's the biggest health problem that there is. What do you say to that, Steve? Well, they're wrong, all the people who say that. I mean, it is clear we have an obesity epidemic around the world, virtually every country. The rates of obesity and overweight have been going up. So there's no question that an epidemic exists. It just gets exaggerated out of proportion in terms of the health effects of the obesity epidemic. And I'm certainly not saying that we should ignore obesity as a um, a risk factor for various uh, non-communicable diseases and such but it is far less important than physical activity and fitness. And in fact, even though I've been ranting about this for at least 15 years, I guarantee you that this week in some top scientific or medical journal from around the world, there will be an article on obesity and health outcome X. And so I immediately go to the find box and I type in physical activity, a nanosecond term not found. So I type in exercise, term not found. Now, would you accept a paper of mine in the BJSM if I were looking at activity and some health outcome and never even mentioned body weight, BMI, or body composition? And yet this still happens today. So I do get a little irritated at that. And we, we've published um, many papers, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 papers over the last 10 or 15 years showing that when you examine the health effects of overweight and obesity and whether it's all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease events, digestive system cancer mortality or whatever, when we adjust the, the data for obesity or body composition for objectively measured laboratory in the laboratory cardiorespiratory fitness, the association between obesity and the health outcome just goes away. And when we adjust fitness for percent fat or waist circumference, the association doesn't go away between fitness and heart disease and stroke and so forth. So my position is inactivity, which leads to low fitness, is a far bigger public health problem than is obesity. But note I've said, we should not ignore the obesity epidemic. I think it's a, a bad public health sign. And Steve, you have some new data on the cause of obesity. Well, yes. Uh, if, if you listen again to the obesity investigators, you typically hear the obesity epidemic is due entirely to people eating too much because physical activity hasn't changed over the course of the obesity epidemic. And you think, well, how can that be true? Then you go look, say in the United States, at the data on self-reported leisure time physical activity over the last 30 years or so, and lo and behold, those lines are pretty flat. But now wait a minute. It's not just self-reported physical activity. It is energy balance. It's calories in and calories out. 
But self-reported physical activity is really only a small part of that. Uh, first of all, resting metabolic rate is the biggest thing. And I, I can't get the obesity crowd to even say, to even notice that in the United States over the last 30 years, people have gained X number of kilograms on average. Well, their energy, their resting metabolic energy expenditure then has gone up proportionally with the additional weight they've gained. But anyway, when we look at the data in the United States on diet and caloric intake over these 30 years, there's no compelling evidence that people are actually eating any more calories. So if physical activity, self-reported leisure physical activity is staying the same, and let's say dietary intake is staying the same, then what's causing the obesity epidemic? Well, there are two key areas that people haven't really looked at. Uh, we did publish under Tim Church's uh, leadership uh, uh, earlier this year the decline in occupational physical activity in the United States over the last 50 years. And that turns out to be, from the calculations we did, 140 calories a day in men and 120 calories a day in women, which is more than enough to explain the obesity epidemic. So that's one area that Again, many people just seem to, oh, they, they will acknowledge, oh, yes, well, labor-saving device, but they don't seem to take that into account in their calculations and their thoughts. And then something we're working on at the moment, what about energy expenditure, non-occupational and non-leisure time, so what's left? Well, it's quite a few hours for most people around the house. Is it easier? Today? Does it take less energy to scrub and wash and vacuum and so forth? Does it take less energy than it did 30, 40 years ago? Your grandmother, your mother? Do we spend fewer calories preparing the food? And the answer is yes. Then when you add on top of that the, the leisure time that is much more sedentary now for many people. So we've really changed energy expenditure. Let's move to the World Health Organization and the discussion of non-communicable diseases. Do you think that was good news? They're catching on and, and starting to recognize physical inactivity as a major health problem? Yes, I think many national and international organizations are recognizing the importance of uh, inactivity. Uh, two years ago, the World Health Organization published a voluminous report on causes of death around the world, all deaths in the world, and causes of death from non-communicable diseases. So about two-thirds of the deaths in the world can be attributed to diseases such as heart disease, stroke, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, and, and the like. So they also then published in that document the risk factors for those, those deaths and for, for total deaths in the world. And the number one risk factor, according to this report, is high blood pressure. Number two is tobacco use. Number three is high blood glucose. Number four is physical inactivity. And uh, ha, 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 obesity was number five. <laughs> and, but as I, as I have said, the data on physical activity and deaths is an underestimate because the WHO data and data around the world we, we use self-reported physical activity as the exposure. And those data are pretty lousy, actually, because 
it's hard to do this and get people to remember. They may not report accurately. So my view is if we had objective data on physical activity, we'd find a much even much bigger effect. And of course, in the work that we've done over the last 30 years, we have the objective laboratory measure of cardiorespiratory fitness from a maximal exercise test. And the principal determinant of your fitness is your physical activity. So I think fitness is a better measure of regular physical activity. And when we use the data on fitness to look at mortality uh, and, and other health outcomes, we find a much stronger effect than we see if we look at activity or if others that have reported activity. So I think inactivity has been underestimated. And then back to the WHO list, remember at the, the top, high blood pressure and then high tobacco use and then high glucose. Well, inactivity contributes to number one and number three. Now, Steve, the uh, skeptics say that you've got to have genetic um, advantages to benefit from physical activity. They say that um, not everyone can have these benefits. What do you say? Well, yes, that's true. And, uh, of course, that applies to high blood pressure. That applies to uh, obesity. I mean, there, there's a genetic contribution to anything you can measure uh, in, in human beings, I, I think. Um, Claude Bouchard, uh, who has done more work on the genetics of physical activity and fitness, and he invented the field really, uh, tells me that the genetic contribution to fitness is actually less than the genetic contribution to body weight or the genetic contribution to cholesterol. Uh, we have examined, however, changes in fitness. And so how do you change fitness? Well, that's not in your genes. The amount of change you get if you take up exercise is genet genetically determined. But if you want to improve your fitness, you have to exercise. So we published a report several years ago in, we, in which we looked at about 10,000 men who'd had two examinations on average five years apart. So we could classify them as never fit, that is unfit at both exams, or improvers, they were unfit initially and then became fit, or people who were always fit. And then we followed them after that second exam for five or more years for mortality. And what we found was that for cardiovascular disease deaths and for all-cause deaths, the improvers reduced their risk of dying by about 50% compared to the men who were those who were always unfit. So you, you reduce your risk, and, and really no matter when you do it, it's, it's never too late to start exercising and getting the benefits of, of being active and fit. And it's great you have the data to support all that, Steve. Congratulations. So that leads us to fitness of 80-year-olds and fitness of 60-year-olds. You shared some data that uh, really an unfit 60-year-old is at quite a high risk of death. Yes, we examined uh, the relation between fitness and all-cause mortality in um, a large group of uh, men and women 60 and older. And we looked again at low, moderate, and high fitness as uh, they were related to mortality. And for all three age groups we examined, we saw a significant steep inverse gradient across fitness categories for all-cause mortality. And I have to say, even I, as uh, enthusiastic as I am about this topic, was a little bit surprised to find that when we looked at the high-fit men and women 80 and older, they had a death rate during follow-up that was one-half that of the unfit men and women 60 to 69. 
fitness is pretty good for you, I don't mind saying. That's fantastic, Steve. So let's finish with a success story because that's an important way of having implementation and, and you're a big advocate for implementation. So how do you get your steps and how do you make sure you stay in the moderate to high fit group? Well, you do have to be active, uh, and the, the, the recommendations for physical activity are now very constant. Uh, U.S., Canada, WHO, and kind of the target we set is 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, such as walking, per week. Or if you like vigorous sports or like running, you get the same benefit from 75 minutes of vigorous activity. So that's kind of the fundamental recommendation around the world. We do say that if you can bump it up to a higher level, 300 minutes of moderate, 150 minutes of vigorous, then you get in the high fit category as we've described it, and you get even a, a little bit more benefit. But another key recommendation in the US and I think WHO and essentially all the countries I know of is something is better than nothing. So if you are very sedentary, sedentary job, no regular activity, don't go to the gym, try to park as close as you can to the door on every occasion, well just try to add something to that. And if it's a 10 minute walk each day, 70 minutes a week, we actually found in a large randomized trial of postmenopausal women uh, who were overweight and unfit, uh, uh, average age about 57 as I recall, uh, the group that was randomized to 72 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity such as walking had a 5% improvement in their fitness, uh, they had other health benefits. You get Oh, and in terms of quality of life, feeling energetic, just having better mental outlook and feeling that you have better physical health, that 72-minute-a-week group really had substantial benefits. So something is better than nothing. And so what do you tell us some things that you do to make sure that you're doing okay? Well, I do count my steps. I've been doing this uh, for all of the 17, 18 years, I suppose, since we started using pedometers in our, uh, our randomized trials. So um, I like to know how many steps I've taken. And for the last two years, I've had a personal goal of 5 million steps a year. And that works out to about 13,600 uh, uh, steps per day. But it doesn't really matter what you do. And I think what we have to do in the health professions, and whether it's physicians, public health workers, physios, uh, whomever, we have to encourage people to, you know, something is better than nothing. Try to get up to this 150 minutes a week if you can in bouts of 10 minutes or more. You don't have to go to the gym to do that. Three 10-minute walks a day, five days a week will will meet that standard. And then we have to really bring the behavioral scientist and the psychologist, and frankly, the urban planning and the transport uh, workers and uh, you know corporations and uh, many many sectors brought into this to make it more convenient uh, for people to get out and move and uh, be more physically active. We are here in London for this meeting and we've been noticing, we think there are more people riding bicycles now in London than 10 years ago. There are even a few bicycle lanes that are about less than one meter wide and on very busy streets, but there are some. Well, so London has made some good strides uh, in those areas compared to most US cities, but I will point out Amsterdam and Copenhagen are still way ahead. Fantastic, Steve. Thank you so much and a nice overview to wrap it up. And I can tell our listeners that uh, I've seen you walking from the 
West End of London after shows to your hotel, which is 50, 75 minutes away at times, you actually do get those 13,000 steps a day, which is about 30% over the minimum 10,000 steps a day or so. So listeners, if you're listening to this on a run or a walk, that's great. If you're at home on your computer, turn it off, go out and uh, get your activity for today, and uh, we'll catch you on another day on a BJSM podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.